Happy 2024. It's officially an election year. And while the talk is constantly about Biden's soft support, we're going to look at whether Trump's situation is really any different. The Iowa caucus is in less than two weeks. It's getting real. We'll talk about what we're looking to learn from Iowa. As of now, Trump won't be on the ballot in Maine. That's a big deal because it's the first such case where actual toss up electoral votes are at stake. Meanwhile, President Biden is about to go into candidate uh, into candidate Biden mode with a seemingly new message. As always, we'll talk about how it'll play out for you in real conversations with real people. Finally, we'll look at quarterback Aaron Rodgers and Senator Bob Menendez, two New Jersey figures whose careers are or should be on their way to an end. Welcome back to the podcast for the 54% of Americans who vote for progress in every election and want to convince their conservative friends and family members to join a majority. This is Majority 54. All right. Well, Jason, five days ago, the main secretary of state booted Trump from the ballot. This is obviously the second state after Colorado to do so. Uh, let's throw up on the screen here. There's this helpful map that the New York Times put together, which shows states where uh, the uh, challenges to the uh, to Trump's access to the ballot uh, are pending, where they've been rejected, and where they've been successful. And while Salty pulls this up, I think it's really interesting because you have blue states where it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, you know, California, et cetera, where it's pending. You have red states where the Supreme Courts aren't going to, you know, the state courts are just packed with MAGA Republicans in all likelihood, and they're not going to rule in our favor. Um, but then you have some states. I w- I'm looking at Wisconsin in particular, right? Last time we checked, mm-hmm. Wisconsin has a Democratic majority. That was like a key election that Ben and the, t- the Wisconsin Democratic Party won in the off cycle. That state, I think, is really fascinating because it is a Democratic majority, as is Michigan. And as we talked about, Michigan kind of punted. So all it'll take mm-hmm. is a couple of these states. Uh, and then it then it starts to get super relevant. Like Maine, I guess, is close because you have that extra Maine delegate. If the, that yeah, that electoral elector, yeah. district. Yeah. Well, so here's two other ways to think about it. Well, here's two other ways to think about it. There are states where, based on the way that they choose their Supreme Courts, um, where uh, you have a big divergence between the makeup of the court and the makeup of the legislature, or even of the electorate, right? Uh, Missouri is one of those states. Now, I don't think that uh, if you were to, if this were to get to, and it's not going to, but if this were to get to the Missouri Supreme Court, I don't think that they would um, find they would read it that way. But it's definitely a much more centrist, or even slightly to the left court traditionally than has been the rest of the state. And there are other states like that, presumably. So there is maybe an outside chance of a world in which you have a, a state Supreme Court that rules that way in a red state. And then if you don't have a constitutional mechanism for them to undo that, well, then you could end up taking votes off the board uh, for Trump that he was expecting. But then you can go even earlier than that. And this is why it's going to end up in the Supreme Court relatively soon is because once you have a certain amount of states like a California, for instance, who do decide on this kind of thing, well, now it's going to affect the primary at some point. Right. And if he can't be on the primary ballot and we're coming up on the primaries, um, then you start to affect his ability to get the nomination. So I think those are the two ways in which it, it comes into play. But I agree with you that this is, I think, the most significant and, and will create the most urgency at the Supreme Court because it's the first time that it is in it is in a place where there might be at least one electoral vote that he was 
hoping to try to get. Yeah, and his lawyer, this woman, it's hard to keep track of who his lawyers are anymore, but this woman, Christina Bob, has been on right-wing networks making an interesting argument. Uh, let's go to this clip. President is elected by the entire nation, and it should be the entire nation who determines who they want for president, whether they're guilty of insurrection or not. It's up to the people. Sure. For the presidential immunity, um, I think I think that they should rule in favor of Donald Trump. Presidential immunity immunity has been in play for the vast majority of our history. It's well established if the acts uh, committed alleged in this indictment are in the furtherance of his office in in accordance with uh, his political office. He's immune from prosecution. Clearly, as the president of the United States, he believes that there was fraud in the election and he had a uh, constitutional obligation to try to secure the election and figure out what was going on. So it, this is a very clear case. He should be covered by presidential immunity. I, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't see them ruling differently, but we'll, we'll see how, how that all plays out. And then as far as the ballot selection goes, the case up from Colorado, um, I think that will be decisively in favor of keeping Trump on the ballot. Isn't it fascinating how all these years later, we just come back to the idea that they're literally like, yeah, he can shoot somebody in the middle of what, what do you say? Fifth Avenue, whatever it was, uh, and get away with it. Like that's literally their argument is that he was furthering his office because he was furthering his opportunity to stay in office. Well, the first thing she said was you know, even if he uh, is committed guilty. insurrection, which clearly is not what the constitution says, but let's play this out. Like, let's say, okay, it's, it's, it's within your duties of the office. Now you've stolen the election, right? You've successfully no prevented certification. Now, now you are still in the office that, and you're furthering your office by staying in the office despite the will of the American people. What mechanism do we have then? And, well, and then let's say you get through your second term and you're like, hey, we have ourselves a crisis situation here. I can't leave. Uh, I know we just held an election between two people who weren't me, but I'm going to stay in. And if that's in furtherance, right? I mean, at some point you become Putin, which is, I guess, his right. goal. Um, uh, interesting sidebar to this whole thing is, uh, the presence of the main secretary of state. So quick little piece of trivia. Well, this is, is a little bit of main justice, actually. <laughs> it is. It is. It's an, people should definitely go to YouTube and Google main justice, Jason Sudeikis, Jamie Foxx, or you can go with the Justin Timberlake variety. But, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> That's funny because that is a reference to a conversation we've been having off air with you and me and the producers where we watched those old clips of those sketches. All right. So uh, another reason that I think this case is probably going to have Trump extra upset is people won't remember that this is not the first time that the secretary of state of Maine has stood in the way of him wanting to circumvent uh, or harm American democracy. So. For those who don't know, the Secretary of State in Maine is chosen by the state legislature, and it's every two years. This is also true for the auditor and for, I think, most of the statewide offices other than governor um, and obviously the Senate off, the, the Senate positions. So, um, and these secretaries of state, they tend to stay in there a while. So the last guy, uh, Dunlap, he was in there for, I think, 10 years. And I, I was Secretary of State of Missouri when he was Secretary of State of Maine. So before we go to Dunlap, let's talk about this current Secretary of State. His name, Besser, I think is her name. It escapes me right now. I, I apologize. But 
they tried to get her to recuse herself from this because she had said things. She was a, a Democratic state senator prior to this. And Bellows she had said is her things. name, by the way. Uh, Bellows, Shenna Bellows. Bellows. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So she uh, had said things about him being guilty of insurrection. And now they're like, no, you can't you can't preside over this because you said he was guilty. And she was basically like, well, yeah, because he's guilty of insurrection. So I'm not going to recuse myself. It's she was like, it's so obvious. There's no reason to. It's like a factual matter. Now, that has him very upset. How can this you know appointed person decide I'm not going to be on the ballot and there'll be a lawsuit about it? Now, what people may not remember is that after the 2016 election, Trump uh, created the Commission on Presidential or the Presidential Commission on Election Integrity, which we referred to, most of us on the left, as the Kobach Commission, because he took the Secretary of State of Kansas at the time, Chris Kobach, a leading white supremacist and current Attorney General of Kansas, and put him in charge of this very, you know, legit seeming commission. It was all dressed up. Uh, I, I remember referring to it at the time as the Committee to Reelect President Trump. And it was just to try and argue that uh, there was voter fraud in the election, particularly in New Hampshire, because he had narrowly lost New Hampshire, even though he had won the presidency. And at this time, then the DNC appointed me to chair what we called the uh, the commission on uh, to sit, the commission to protect uh, American democracy from the Trump administration. And what what was very controversial and weird at the time was Matt Dunlap, a Democrat who was the Secretary of State of Maine and had been for years, accepted an appointment on the Kobach Commission. And a lot of us tried to reach out to him to say like, why are you doing this? Why are you legitimizing this commission? And he didn't really respond other than to be like, hey, I know what I'm doing. And he stayed there and he was quiet and he was in the meetings and he would ask a few questions, but they absolutely thought that, hey, we got this guy who just really wanted to get his name in the headlines to give us the legitimacy of a bipartisan commission on election integrity to make it look like, you know, to help them attack American democracy. And about six months in, after they'd only had two meetings and after we had gone and protested both meetings and, and shown up, Dunlap started publicly asking for the evidence of uh, fraud. He was like, we've had these hearings. There's been no evidence. Can somebody show me the evidence? And nobody did. And so then he went public with that. And then finally, he resigned from the commission uh, because he was like, they can't show any evidence. I don't think this is real. I tried to do it in good faith. I'm out of here. And then they never had a third meeting and it was disbanded. So it's just a little context as to Trump is not just seeing this as Maine took him off the ballot. He's mad. He's sitting there going, why is it that this is the second time that this little piddly office that's appointed in Maine that I would never have known who this person is, is foiling me again, and it's a, a totally new person in the job. And I just think that's kind of fun. Good for Maine secretaries of state for constantly being a burr in his saddle. <laughs> well, let's, well, you know, normally we would, we're 12 days from Iowa, Jason. Normally we would lead with that fact, but there's really not a whole lot happening there. Uh, the real clear average right now, um, which is from the beginning of December uh, until now, has it Trump 51, DeSantis 18, Haley 16, Ramaswamy 6. Uh, the most recent poll basically has DeSantis and Haley uh, in a, essentially a tie. And I think, you know, the best spin you could put on this right now is that they're trying to vie for second place. And as we talked about before, Haley is closer in New Hampshire, although I wouldn't say that close. Like the UMass Lowell poll that came out last week or two weeks ago had it Trump 52, Haley 22. So she's still pretty far behind and Trump is over 50% in the polls there. Um, but, you know, as we've said before, the path for Haley is 
overperform expectations in Iowa, which in her case would be second. That would also essentially knock DeSantis out of the race. It essentially becomes a two-person race. New Hampshire is more moderate. Haley wins or comes close there and then wins potentially in her home state, which is pretty conservative, so it's not easy for her to do that. And then we're off to the races. We said it was possible, but unlikely. Uh, I still think it is unlikely. <laughs> I'm not sure how possible it is at this point, Jason. Have you changed your calculus? No, I, I, I think it's I think it's possible. Uh, it's highly unlikely. I mean, I guess what she has going for is that New Hampshire not just is more moderate than the voters in Iowa, but they also, I think, inherently like the attention. And I think, uh, which is, I'm just saying that I think that they like to zag when everybody else zigs, right? They just like to go, hey, you know what? Uh, you think this is over? It's not over. Uh, they like an underdog, right? I mean, we've seen that many times before. Um, I think it's highly unlikely that she wins her home state um, just because. Like, I can't imagine a more conservative primary electorate than South Carolina, but it's not about conservative because Trump's not conservative. Trump's just authoritarian. It's not about conservative. Right. It's I just can't imagine a more Trumpish, um, you know, electorate uh, than South Carolina. So I just it's hard for me to see that happening. Now, the other thing, though, to consider here is it's not just about whether he could lose this primary. It is more about there's this narrative on the right that. And narrative just throughout the media um, that has some truth to it, that support for Biden is soft. Uh, and I'd say it has a lot of truth to it, right? That in the sense that there's not as much enthusiasm as we would like, that some of the key constituencies, um, uh, you know, black voters, uh, Latino voters, that they are not, you know, while it's he's winning those voters, he's not winning them um, by the overwhelming numbers, particularly with black voters that you would usually expect right now. And that is cause for concern. But when you look at the fact that Donald Trump is, is a candidate who's essentially looking for re-election to the presidency, right? He's not in office, but he's been president of the United States before. And like pretty recently, he is absolutely the leader of their party. Um, and he's running for re-election. And it's not much of a fight, but it is a fight in the primary. And then you look at just how much trouble he's having uh, getting uh, getting like members of Congress who are looking, and it's not about like winning over members of Congress. It's they're looking at the same polling that he is. And they're not excited about jumping on board with him this early. Whereas last time, there were a lot more of them that were like, all right, let's, and the ones who were in were all the way in. And now what you're seeing is senators and members of Congress and other politicians who are endorsing Trump are pretty well trying to hold off doing it as long as they can in many cases. And then when they're doing it, they're just kind of being like, yeah, I endorse him. Can we move on? Like it's like they're checking a box, and that says something about them understanding his vulnerability. Probably not in the primary. They're more irritated that he's not vulnerable in the primary. They're disappointed, I guess I should say, and they're just you know trepidatious and reluctantly going along with with the general election. And so, I guess what I'm saying is, I think the conversation or the thing that I'm more interested in now is who's going to be his running mate because. This feels like a race to me where you, first of all, you only have one running mate that's going to be chosen, which means on either ticket, you're likely only going to have one new shiny personality for people to pay attention to. And, and it's likely going to be somebody that they use to try and inject youth uh, and excitement into the ticket. Um, and I think that becomes really important in a race where people are looking I don't know why, I can't explain why, but there are people who can't decide between the two and 
are going to be looking for something to base that decision on. Right. You could imagine like a, a gnome in, in South Dakota or somebody like that is, is a, right. seems like the kind of person he would pick. Now, the Washington Post had some interesting reporting on the ground in Iowa around just like the differences between the different campaigns. I think number one interesting fact is the electorate doesn't seem to have penalized Trump at all for not really spending a ton of time there. Um, the second interesting part of it is that DeSantis, we love to make fun of how inept DeSantis's campaign has been, but by most press accounts, they have a pretty aggressive and organized ground game where they're knocking target doors for the fifth time. And essentially what's shaping up with this you know, basic tie between DeSantis and, and Haley is Haley has a, seems like not the greatest ground game, but massive spending. She's reserved $22 million in TV it, it, from what they're reporting. Um, but DeSantis has a, a good, great ground, ground game. So uh, that's going to be, you know, that plus the qualities of the candidates are going to decide in these next few weeks who comes in second and who is even relevant after Iowa. Knowing as much as I know about Iowa, and I know you know a lot about it too, I know that DeSantis is not the greatest candidate, but if I had to pick between a better ground game or a better air game if, in Iowa, I'm going with the ground game. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know better because you stayed all the way through the caucuses. I, I, was, I was out of the race uh, and running for mayor before the caucuses in my case, but I'm very familiar with the idea that like, it's, I, I thought that running for president in the early states to me was a lot more like running for the state legislature than it was like running for statewide office. It reminded me much more of it. There's the, at least the training I got running for state legislature was much more useful to me than the training of having run for statewide office because you're, you just, you're in a lot of living rooms and you're trying to get commitments from people who, when they commit, a lot of people tend to go with them. Um, and you know, their dog is on your lap, you know, and like that, that's what it is. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think the ground game is huge. And I also think that if DeSantis's ground game ends up outperforming Haley's and, and DeSantis is second in Iowa, after months now of people saying Haley was the real threat to Trump, then I think Haley's toast at that yeah, point. Yeah, well, I, I think right. it, I think that that takes it from a ninety nine percent chance that Trump wins this to a hundred percent because right. there's no world in which DeSantis beats Trump. You could you could squint and imagine a world in which Haley could come up with a path to victory. So and and yeah. well, and then what happens is you just have that question of character. Does Haley immediately pivot? To trying to become the running mate, for um, sure. It's a, the yeah. question of does she have any character? Oh, I think it's, we know the answer to that. She already served as his UN I'm ambassador. Not sure. Yeah, yeah, I know, um, but it's possible she she grew some character. It's possible. It's not. It's it's <laughs> it's not impossible. Come on, man! I'm trying to be idealistic here. All right. Well, uh, uh, we're going to take an ad break on that note. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about what the president of the United States has been up to. We're coming up on the third anniversary of January 6th. Uh, then we're going to talk about this Epstein list, which is imminent, and uh, a little bit of um, sports and pop culture injection into that debate. Uh, and then we're going to talk about uh, the uh, senior senator, is he the senior senator from New Jersey? Uh, yeah, yeah. Bob Menendez uh, and some new charges that he's facing. All of this and more when we come back. This episode is sponsored by Roan. If you're like me, 
you understand the pains of finding what to wear. Most clothes are uncomfortable. They may be too tight. They never, you know, actually fit your size because, you know, a lot of us are not exactly small, medium, large, extra large. We're complicated. Sometimes when you find something you like, you can only wear it for a few hours before that important meeting or dinner, and then you have to change it into something else. And everyone wants to dress their best. You want to look good at all times. And frankly, it's a confidence booster. So here's the deal. Men's closets were due for a radical reinvention and Roan stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection is the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible set of products known to man, and here's why. Roan helps you get ready for any occasion with the commuter collection, which offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. You never have to worry about what to wear when you have the Roan commuter collection. And here's some anecdote. I'm wearing my Roan pants right now. And last week I was at a wedding. I wore my Roan uh, button-down shirt to the wedding at a formal wedding and I will also wear it tomorrow when I just you know go into a coffee shop to have a meeting it's that versatile so it's time to feel confident without the hassle with Roan's wrinkle release technology wrinkles disappear as you stretch and wear the products it's that easy yeah I actually you know not so neatly folded that shirt in my bag for the wedding and I was able to take it out and Automatically, I was able to put it on. It looked like I had ironed it, but I didn't. You know, it's an inside secret between us. So with Gold Fusion anti-odor technology, you'll also be smelling fresh and clean all day. On top of that, Roan is 100% machine washable, so you can dish the dry cleaner all together. We're on the move a lot, and the Roan commuter collection has never let me down. The versatility and overall comfort of the collection is undefeated. I absolutely love it. And even after I wear it all day, I feel super fresh because that Gold Fusion fusion anti-odor technology at that wedding i was dancing up a storm wore it no problems so the commuter collection can get you through any work day and straight into whatever comes next so head to roan.com majority and use the promo code majority to save 20 percent off your entire order that's 20 percent off your entire order when you head to r-h-o-n-e.com majority and use the code majority it's time to find your corner office comfort we all have a heartfelt reason to support our blood pressure in fact more than half the u.s population would benefit from blood pressure support. Superbeats heart shoes are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure, and they promote heart-healthy energy. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Superbeats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. And with over 30,000 five-star reviews and counting, Superbeats heart shoes are having their moment. Superbeats heart shoes are incredibly delicious and so much better than any alternative supplements out there. I take my Super Beats Heart Shoes each morning, and it's really kickstarted my morning routine. After taking my Super Beats Heart Shoes, I feel like I have more energy and I'm ready to take on the day. Super Beats is the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended heart shoe for cardiovascular health support. It's blood pressure support you can trust. Support your heart health with Super Beats Heart Shoes. Get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Shoes and a free full-size bag of turmeric shoes valued at $25 by going to majority54beats.com. Get this exclusive offer only at majority54beats.com. Well, Jason, uh, President Biden is going on the offensive you know, in three days. So this Saturday's three-year anniversary of January 6th. President Biden will be heading down to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania to give remarks on the anniversary. Uh, and he is going to talk about the threat that uh, Trump faces uh, 
against our democracy. And obviously, this is where Washington establishes headquarters during the Revolutionary War. So there's heavy on symbolism. On Monday, Biden is going to schedule to visit Mother Emanuel AME in Charleston, where nine people were killed, uh, murdered by white supremacists in 2015. If you remember the, the Obama speech that he gave there, it's um, one of the most surreal moments of the presidency. Uh, I think these are the right things to be doing. Uh, and I think what, what Biden is facing right now is, you know, Trump is always going to be more exciting, right? So the question is, can you cut through and make a forceful argument that people are going to listen to, people are going to write about, you know, not just the traditional media, but the alternative media as well? Yeah, I agree. And I, I really like the quote from Biden's campaign manager, Julie Chavez Rodriguez, who said, our message is clear and simple. We are running a campaign like the fate of our democracy depends on it because it does, which I think is the right way to talk about these things. Um, it's just, it's very simple. It is the fate of democracy depends on it. Now, the question is, can we, all of us in our regular conversations with regular people, make that real for folks? Um, because, you know, it's one of those things where even with everything we've been through over the last few years, one thing that still feels relatively permanent to anybody who hasn't been following this as closely as you or I or a lot of the people who listen to this show is the idea of American democracy. It is, even for us, I think it is difficult to really envision the idea of getting to a point where we don't really have a democracy. We know it's real. We know it... Um, we know it's a real possibility and it's, and it's something to be very concerned about, but it's still hard to conceptualize it in the same way, really, that uh, Roe being overturned and the Dobbs decision becoming the reality was, I think, naively, maybe for a lot of us, hard to conceptualize because it had, you know, and that's just something that had been in place for 40 years, um, I guess, 50 years. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's, it's, uh, it's similar to that, but it's even more severe. So it is the right message, but it is crucial that people really work to create the imagery and make the case that that is as real as it, as it actually is. Yeah, and, and I think the right-wing media is running out of energy trying to spin the American public that the economy is not doing well. Uh, let's go, and this is you know Fox News and Fox Business. Let's go to this like, super cut of how Fox has been talking about the economy lately. I want to go into uh, one of my favorite topics, Bidenomics. While it's perfectly true that the third quarter recent months, at least in terms of GDP, was a stronger economy than expected, okay? It's also true that inflation rates have come down, undeniably true. But primary, the first and foremost issue for voters is going to be the economy. It always is, uh, pocketbook issues. And in that regard, uh, uh, President Biden's going to have a better and better story to tell as the year unfolds. It's a strong economy now. Inflation is coming down. Interest rates are coming down. The job market is strong. I'm excited, Larry. We got the juice in printing money. We've got the Fed slowing down. We've got the soft landing. We've got broadening of the S&P 500 and the S&P 500. And obviously the Russell 2000. This is a fantastic holiday season. <laughs> Rudolph the reindeer has arrived. Yeah, well, you know, the consumer confidence report is up. You, we've got lower gasoline prices. We've seen inflation data come down. 
But I do think there is good economic news out there for the middle class. Wages are up. Unemployment's down. Manufacturing is booming in many parts of the country. Yeah, I, I imagine like... Yeah, oh, sorry. What were you going to say? No, you, you well, go. You go. I mean, I imagine the next sentence in all of these clips is like, well, like the non-farm, you know, high-tech, you know, labor pool outside of Toledo is down or something, like some kind of obscure statistic. Orange uh, juice futures. More yeah. More. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, there's some, so there's some data point I'm sure they'll point to that says. I, I that think the other thing about this that's interesting is that these are a bunch of, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense, I just... Actually, this is a bunch of capitalists who they turn to to ask this, yeah. and they did it just before the holidays. And one, it, it's hard to talk about the economy right now and say that you know it's all doom and gloom and be anything close to reality. But also, those folks, particularly what's his name from the Shark Tank, I mean, who's literally pitching his products in his answer to how's the economy doing, Kevin O'Leary. Thank you, Salty. Um, that dude uh, is is just. Uh, basically trying, he's just like, Hey, go shop. He's trying to get people to buy stuff. Right. And that's what a lot of them are trying to do. And so that is to say that at some point, uh, they're not going to be as interested in that because they're all, they're going to revert to being partisans. But right now, yeah, they're having a hard time spinning the economy as bad. Um, and it's a good thing, obviously there should be some things going in our favor. Well, okay, let's turn, let's do a complete 180 here, Jason, and let's talk about this Epstein list, which is imminent. It looks like a judge has now ordered that the list, and what is this list exactly? I, it's like, I guess, known not conspirators. Sure. It's like known, like, well, it's like a, it's a civil suit, right? It's a civil suit against uh, Maxwell. And, and so as a result, like there's discovery involved that has to do with who all was, uh, I think mostly, um, on the flight manifests, I think, to go to like his island or other places. Um, and so there's going to be some names on it um, on both sides of the aisle, I assume. Um, and so what time is it now? It is central time. It is 1.32 on Wednesday. We dropped this on audio on Thursday mornings. Folks who are watching us right now are watching us live probably, or you're watching after we've, we've streamed. Um, and it's not out yet. And it sounds like what's happening is, is that the parties are going to file this stuff uh, toward the end of today, which I would assume means close to five o'clock Eastern. Uh, and then I don't know if the court has to look at it before it puts it out or not. But so we're probably a couple hours away from that. And there's some kind of spat going on. I need you to explain this to me involving uh, the quarterback for the New York Jets. What happened yes. here? Okay. So. For context, for those who don't follow uh, sports all that closely, um, people have heard the name Aaron Rodgers. If you know Aaron Rodgers not really from following uh, football, you know him from during COVID when he, when they asked him if he had been vaccinated and he said, yes, I'm immunized. And it turned out he was obfuscating and he was a, he's an anti-vaxxer and he's become, you know, he's become like, I don't even say Republican, like he's just like a Joe Rogan-ish type guy, I guess, right? He's become like a big conspiracy theorist guy and um, I'm sure is voting for Trump. But but that's sort of the camp that he's in now. And he's he's gradually gone from being the lovable, you know, guy that, you know, insurance companies wanted to use as an endorser to being in the commercials with Mahomes to all that to now like 
he's kind of become a pariah um, because he's really gone into this world quite a bit and he seems to enjoy it. Um, and he regularly does this show on ESPN hosted by this guy, Pat McAfee, who's kind of, he's a huge star at ESPN. Um, he's a former, I think, punter for the Indianapolis Colts, but really he's just been a very effective media personality when it comes to talking about football. And he goes on that show regularly and he said some dumb stuff before. Um, in fact, uh, in the past, he has referenced um, the Epstein list, and this is several months ago. He's clearly been following this and has been very excited about it for quite a long time. Uh, and that's something that uh, Jimmy Kimmel reacted to as part of his monologue at one point. So let's, we're going to start. We're going to play a clip from a few months ago, I think it was, um, where this is from Jimmy Kimmel's show, where he's playing a clip of Aaron Rodgers on McAfee's show and then, and then Kimmel's commenting on it. Bring up 57 and 56. Does that something to do with the Epstein list that came out? <laughs> Feels like, <laughs> feels like that's supposed to be coming out soon. That's supposed to be coming out. Soon. Look, this guy's been it's waiting in his wine this is, cellar. This is the most. I've been waiting in my wine he's cellar for this thing. Hiding. A lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, are really hoping that doesn't. Happen. <laughs> All right. All right. Obviously, a clip from this particular program was run on Jimmy Kimmel's show. Uh, whenever Aaron brought up the the list, and then. Jimmy mocked him for it. Mm -hmm. Aaron has not forgotten about that. But here we are sitting right in front of that nice bottle of scotch. Mm -hmm. What do you say? I'm waiting to celebrate something. Oh, yeah. Let's yeah. say all this UFO talk has the tinfoil hatters going wild, including Green Bay whack packer Aaron Rodgers, who offered this hot take on the Pat McAfee show. I, I believe that this has been going on for a long time. Interesting uh, timing on everything. There's a lot of other things going on in the world. Did you hear about the Epstein client list uh, about to be released, too? What's that? What are you talking about? There's some files that have, have some names on it that might be uh, getting released pretty soon. Oh. Oh. <laughs> might be time to revisit that concussion protocol, Aaron. <laughs> All right. So let me unpack this because we kind of ended up playing it for you a little bit in reverse order, which is no big deal. But so the beginning clip, the first clip you heard of him saying, oh, the thing referencing Jimmy Kimmel being on the on the Epstein client list uh, that it, and for anybody who doesn't remember to say Epstein client list is to say people who engaged in pedophilia okay and sex trafficking against minors is what he's saying and he's claiming Jimmy Kimmel is on the list right well then what they play for you is the clip that I was referencing which is from a year ago where um, Aaron Rodgers brings this up on the same show, not mentioning Kimmel, um, and just sort of out of nowhere. And this is a year ago, and people weren't really talking about this. And he's, and then the UFO stuff were fine. Like I think lots of reasonable people believe that UFOs have been around for a while. I'm sort of inclined toward that belief. What I'm not inclined toward is the idea that it's just being announced now as a conspiracy to distract us from other things, which is where Rodgers was going, which is what Kimmel was making fun of. Now, Rodgers goes on, and he says that Jimmy Kimmel is on the list. Now, Pat McAfee, the host of that show, has just in the last hour uh, put out a statement where he, he, I think he went on a show and he kind of apologized, but he was like, look, we're not that kind of show. We just have people on. They say stuff. We don't want to upset anybody. And that's because Jimmy Kimmel rightfully did not take this as a joke because it is not funny. Uh, and so if we have it, we can put up Jimmy Kimmel's tweet aimed at Aaron Rodgers, where he says, dear asshole. Now, I think it is funny that he put two A's in asshole because that's how Aaron uh, spells his name. For the record, I've not met, flown with, visited, or had any contact whatsoever with Epstein. 
nor will you find my name on any list other than the clearly phony nonsense that soft-brained wackos like yourself can't seem to distinguish from reality. Your reckless words put my family in danger. Keep it up and we will debate the facts further in court. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because, one, it just kind of pisses me off because Jimmy Kimmel is a really good person and uh, Aaron Rodgers is a guy who doesn't think twice about claiming that somebody like doesn't think twice about elevating about just putting a conspiracy like that out into the world based on absolutely nothing and then allowing it to just run its course right like Aaron Rodgers hasn't made a statement saying that was a bad joke I'm sorry he's no and when Jimmy Kimmel says put my family in danger like people need to remember Pizzagate was because a lot of these crazy right wingers believe that there's these pedophilia rings that they have to break up and they and they go to try to murder people to do it. And now if you look, all of these right wingers, uh, like big accounts with millions of followers on Twitter are just saying as if it's fact that Jimmy Kimmel is on the Epstein list, which is not only wholly untrue, it is based on nothing other than Aaron Rodgers saying it as a joke. Um, and, and so I just, pointed out to say like it's really a scary world where you really can't put people's lives in danger just by saying something and speaking it into existence when there's nothing behind it at all and i that's how it crosses over with politics to me is that this is sort of a case study of the right wing machine and how scary it can be what i find absolutely mind boggling is that there's almost no human being other than Jocelyn Maxwell who has taken more photos with Epstein than Donald Trump. Uh, we could put this on the screen, yeah. but there are all these collages going around the internet. It's actually amazing. There are probably fewer photos in existence of me and my own sister than there are of Trump with Epstein <laughs> and Ghislaine Maxwell. No offense, Natalie. I know you listen. We actually, you know, we just don't take a lot of photos. Uh, and it's like, I, I, this is just what we photographed, right? Like, mm -hmm. could you imagine like how many times these people have hung out and, and what kind of shady stuff? And by the way, like Trump has also been on video saying all sorts of stuff about Epstein and acknowledging that he knows that Epstein has a reputation for liking younger women. Like these are, yeah, could you said, imagine? He like, said like, we, we share that. He has all these pretty girls around him. They're on the younger side, just kind of like the way I like it, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, yes, it's just disgusting. And. Look, I feel compelled to like, as a, just sort of a character, well, the reason this gets me so animated in addition to the like right wing machine being so scary uh, in this way is that like, I know Jimmy Kimmel, uh, like he's a friend of mine and like, he's an incredibly good person. Like this is a guy who I've never talked about this publicly before, who, when, when I started trying to rescue, um, the Raufi family out of Afghanistan in August of 2021. And, and then that later became you know, um, for <laughs> Jeremy just said, yes, flex on the viewers, Jason. I'm not trying to be a jerk name dropper. I'm, this is an important story to me, uh, is that, um, you know, we got to the point where we had like 400 people we were trying to get out and we realized we needed to raise a lot of money to charter a plane into Northern Afghanistan. And so one of the first things I did is I, I texted Jimmy and I was like, Hey, all I said was like, there's something like, Hey, um, there's 400 Afghan allies. Uh, in Afghanistan right now, I'm trying to raise $700,000 by the end of the day to charter a flight in there to get them out because they're in a lot of danger. Do you think you can help? I didn't ask for a specific number. I said, do you think you can help? And Jimmy, within like a minute, 
texted me back and all he said was, um, Molly and I are in for 50K. Feel free to use our name with other donors, which that last part I hadn't even thought of. It was a huge help and it really helped us raise a lot more money. Like people would literally say that day, like, well, I'll do half of what Kimmel did, you know, and stuff like that. So that's the kind of person that we're dealing with. I don't see Aaron Rodgers doing that. <laughs> um, but Aaron Rodgers has no problem just telling half the country who would be, you know, or 30% of the country or whatever to be inclined to believe him that this is a terrible person who would do that kind of thing. And that, uh, and, and, you know, putting him and his family in danger. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll so, see what happens. I mean, this, uh, this, this evening it should come out, you know, this is as predictable as anything. I'm sure there'll be some billionaires on there. There'll be, you know, maybe, you know, democratic politicians, you know, Bill Clinton is alleged to have been friends with him and all that. I mean, I guess definitely was friends with him. And then you'll have, um, known right-wing figures and as predictable as anything, people will parse this and focus on the the people that are convenient politically to them. And I think what I look at is this is evidence of a bipartisan culture of access and corruption that you know favors the powerful in this country. And the reason why Epstein avoided justice for so long isn't because of Democrats or Republicans. It's because rich people in this country get away with serious crimes too often. And have a culture of impunity. And that's my lesson from all this. Uh, but if I am keeping score for the current presidential, uh, the, um, current presidential race, it's not even close. Like if the Epstein stuff is going to have any impact, one person had a clear relationship with him and one had none. So like, mm -hmm. I don't, it's, like it's crazy that this is even a debate. Uh, and they'll try to relitigate the Clinton 2016 race or the 20. Yeah, it's like, that race is now long in a rear view mirror. Yeah. Look, even the most ardent Trump supporter would be, I think, would, would have to be lying to themselves if his name is on the list and, and then they're asked the question, do you think, because having your name on this list that gets reported is not the end of the argument, right? We don't know how the list was kept. We don't know that kind of stuff, right? But having what would basically be an allegation of being a client of a service that provides underaged women, uh, you know, and exploits them for sex, sex trafficking, to be accused of that, would there really be any Trump supporters that would be like, he would never do that? Right. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. I just think there's going to be a lot that are going to be like, I don't care. <laughs> or like, right. I don't believe it. But they're not, no one's going to be like, look, that's clearly not in his character. <laughs> like, no one's going right. to say that. And so I, I'm not, I'm not trying to make an accusation. I'm just saying factually, like they don't care if, it, you know, right. whereas like on our side of things, people would care. Yeah. Know? Actually, interesting. Um, they remind me, remind me uh, what's today? Today's Wednesday. Yesterday we dropped like, an Like episode. if somehow Biden's name was on the list, I was just gonna say, if Biden's name was on the list, the left would rightfully be like, you have to step aside and he would be forced. Yeah. To. That's the difference. Right. Well, well, we'll talk in a second about something like that going on in the Senate. But what's interesting, mm -hmm. you remind me of like this sort of apologies for Trump. I interviewed Tim Alberta, if you know Tim Alberta from Political, the guy who wrote the the, the CNN um, CEO story and all that, and wrote American Carnage about the GOP. He wrote a book called um, "The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory." And Tim Alberta comes from an evangelical Christian family. His dad was pastor of a big church in Michigan. He wrote this book all about the history of the evangelical movement and the, the 
uh, religious right. It's super fascinating. So people want to go to the Lost to Be podcast feed. That episode's up from yesterday. And he he goes deep, especially for people in our audience who are devout. He goes really deep into the scripture and how people justify this and what's going on within these churches. He talks about Liberty University and Falwell Jr. and all this kind of stuff. It's really fascinating. And it's a history I had no idea about. Um, so it's worth a listen. But oh, you, you so just speaking of like, you know, Democrats calling on people to resign, I continue to be baffled as to why Senator Menendez is still a senator. He was hit with another superseding federal indictment on Tuesday, which alleges that he took bribes in exchange for helping Qatar this time. Um, he had already uh, faced charges for helping Egypt. I just want to put it on record, like for this podcast, for everybody listening. I just think this is absurd. I think any Democrat who defends him continuing to have his seat has a ridiculous double standard. And everybody listening to this podcast, uh, we should all be on record in saying whatever I, form you have, this guy shouldn't be in office. I agree. The dude is charged with taking bars of gold <laughs> and cash. Uh, like, that's old school bribery, man. I mean, that that's not like, oh, he accepted a campaign contribution or a flight. They were like, here's some gold. Like, for all we know, it was in a briefcase, like a movie from the 80s. Uh, and so, but I think that we should, and I, and I, I wanted us to talk about these two things together to say that when you are talking about this with friends, relatives, you know, uh, people who are Biden curious or curious about leaving the Trump side, it's important to point out that there are people on the left who are calling, like Fetterman and others, who are calling for Menendez to leave the Senate, even though that vote is a crucial vote. Um, and there is a double standard, right? Or there, not a double standard. There is a different standard from uh, what how the Democrats treat this sort of thing and how the Republicans treat it. And and so it's not the it's not true to say that all all politicians are the same and that it doesn't matter who's in charge. If what you care about is corruption, one party is showing. Like I mean, he's got all these opponents in in New Jersey now, um, so or not opponents, but all these people running to replace him. Uh, and they started running before he said he wasn't running again. So I think that that is uh, significant. Yeah, I mean, he should go. All right, that's my bottom line. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, with that said, I'll do a quick grab an oar unless you have one. Um, and my, and we could do both my, if you have one, mine is, um, Ruben Gallego is running for the U S Senate. We've had him on this show before. I think we've mentioned it in the past. Um, but you know, I'm planning to, uh, do a little campaigning for Ruben uh, and I don't do that for a whole lot of people anymore. Cause I've got other stuff going on. Uh, but, uh, he's just an incredible guy. I think most people are familiar with him who listen to the show, but if you're not, you should look up Ruben Gallego. He's a congressman from Phoenix, and he's running um, to replace Kirsten Cinema in the Senate. It's looking very much like the race is probably going to be between him and Kerry Lake. Uh, and it's an incredibly important race, and he's an awesome guy. So people should go to um, Gallego for Arizona dot uh, com and make a donation uh, to him. So with that said, uh, one for us. You're still in Costa Rica. Still in Costa Rica. Um, yeah, just I'm here until for another 10 days and just uh, finishing, you know, just editing this novel. I finished the novel uh, at the end of last year, so I'm in the editing phase of that. Working on a whole bunch of fun projects and sneaking in some surfing and tennis, so I can't complain. Uh, I want to read it as soon as you're ready. Um, yes. So that's a couple of weeks, I think. Can... 
in a couple of weeks it'll okay. be in, in decent enough shape for that. Um, how about you, man? Was, how was your, how was your uh, New Year's and Christmas? I was also thinking, by the way, before I get into that, um, I was going to talk to you about this off the air, but it relates to the novel thing. The Ledge, the show that the pilot that we wrote that we never did anything with, I was talking with Diana the other night. You and I have some other like book ideas for the future, but at some point we need to get around to. We should just make that a novel. That would be a great novel. I do think that would uh, be an amazing novel. Um, now that I've done it once, and especially, you know, the the, the first I, I took the highest degree of difficulty. I wrote a first person book from the perspective of a teenager in a different era, so it requires a lot. It was in the nineties, so it requires like research mm-hmm. and perspective and like really refining the voice because you can't like write from your own kind of like intellectual perspective, yeah. right? You have to kind of like match the sort of knowledge base that a teenager at that period of time would have. It was really hard, but I'm glad I did it because I, I feel like anything else I pick up next will be a little bit easier, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited. Yeah, so I, I like yeah. the idea of uh, turning that into a novel. Um, well, we did a lot of stuff over New Year's and Christmas and everything. I mean, the biggest thing is it's just, it actually reminded us a lot of quarantine um, because you're like in the house and we were a little bit quarantined because, uh, you know, I had dental surgery, true head surgery, then Bella got sick. And so like, we couldn't see our friends and family much other than Christmas, Christmas Eve. And, and we couldn't even do new year's Eve or new year's because everybody was sick. So we were just sort of on top of each other and it was all fine, but it kind of reminded <laughs> us of how rough COVID kind of was. But during that time, I got to uh, follow your recommendation from a few weeks ago and I watched the Pacific. Yes. And, uh, uh, man, it is really good. Uh, and it is really different than Band of Brothers. It is heavy. Like I had yes. to, um, I mean, obviously it's in my case, it, maybe it's a little different than the way other people will experience it. But, um, I did something I have not done for any show or anything before, which is I ended up stopping part of the way through and going and reading summaries of the episodes so that I could go back and, cause I really wanted to watch it but I was having trouble with it. Um, so I read the summaries mm. um, and it really helped. It made it much easier because I kind of knew what was coming. So you would, you would read to, it, you, you'd read the summaries and then you'd watch the episode. Um, yeah. So, I mean, basically yeah. I wanted to know who was going to get killed and, and what they were going to experience. And I wanted to know because they're historical. Uh, the other thing is they're actual people who existed. Yeah. And so I wanted, and so that made it easier for me to watch it and, and appreciate understanding that part of history, that experience, and also just the filmmaking and that kind of thing. But uh, anyway, but by the time I, I had to process it for a while. What was the guy's name who re-enlisted the sort of famous soldier who became like a celebrity? Basilone, the the Marine who he had had received the Medal of Honor. I was, I drove through, I don't know if you've ever driven through the Camp Pendleton section of California Mm -hmm. before. It's really crazy. It's actually one of the most interesting places in America. I was just talking about this the other day. It is as vast an area of federal land that is in prime real estate that you can ever find. Like if the U S government was ever like, we Mm. want to wipe out the debt uh, today, they could sell it for like trillions of dollars. I mean, we're talking about the most valuable California coast period. And there's a John Bastalone, I think highway. And his name is everywhere there. Cause if you remember, that's like uh, where Mm -hmm. he came from. Where Camp Pendleton is where yeah, there's a lot of it was like I think established there. really and built up because they were sending people to the Pacific from what I understand. Mm-hmm. And so um 
his decision to re-enlist, I thought, was really interesting. Like, and I thought that was it was harder to do because it wasn't one company, from what I understand, um, that that they were following in, yeah. in the Pacific, and it wasn't just one country. So it was it's kind of hard to follow everything that's going on, and I think the cynicism of some of these endeavors, like you're watching Band of Brothers, and it's like so obvious you know every now and then you had these like campaigns that seemed useless but like um or like useless is probably the wrong word but probably like in hindsight didn't really advance the war aims whereas i forget which uh which island they were on where they were trying to like basically get the the japanese soldiers out of the caves the caverns and at the Mm -hmm. end of the episode they essentially they they admit that this just didn't serve any strategic objective whatsoever. And so many of these guys died for that. I think that kind of Vietnam style feel to some of that makes it a much different feel. I think it's also, you know, I was not in the Marine Corps, I was in the army, but I've been around a lot of Marines and I served with Marines. It is, it very well matches. And this could be very, this is likely formed during that period, but it matches the, the sort of vibe and the sentimentality of the Marine Corps, of the the sense of like we're and it's not unfounded, but we're we're the forgotten service. You know, we get the hand me down stuff, and uh, we're taken for granted. Um, and and I, you can sort of see the roots of a lot of that um, in in the uh, Pacific Islands campaign uh, in World War Two. I also think, um, well, one thing I was wondering, and I was going to ask you, uh, is whenever you watch something like that, like there's a character that you feel like you relate to the most, or you sort of like, if I was there, I'd be the, do you remember like if there was somebody in it that you were like, oh, I'm probably that person. Oh, it's so interesting. Uh, I could probably answer for band of brothers more because I remember those characters more. I do not mm-hmm. identify with Barcelona because I would, if I were home, I would have stayed home. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that. I'm not sure I would have gone back. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I didn't serve, so it's just such a silly thing to say. Like, I, I, I would say, yeah, I but just they were all admire- civilians when the war started, so that's why I yeah. think it's not that hard to relate. Yeah, um, I'd have to think about it. But what about you? Uh, for me, so I agree. It's very hard to relate to Barcelona. Um, what he did was obviously beyond heroic. Um, I can relate to the wanting to go back, like um, because I, I tried to go back. Now I didn't experience what he experienced, but. Um, but I mean, I, the reason I can relate is I think if you come home and you're being paraded around as this hero and all your buddies are still there, um, I, I, I think it was, that was probably extremely hard, uh, to do. And it's why he wanted to go back. And it, to me, that makes sense. Um, that said, it doesn't mean I can relate to, to him, um, or what he did. Um, I, I probably the, I mean, I, obviously the character who expressly is shown to, to experience PTSD in the, in it. Um, I relate to, but also because he's like just this guy who nobody in his family had really served and, uh, his name's Eugene Sledge and, and it was not expected of him, but he really wanted to go. And then it might've been perhaps more than he bargained for and it changed him. And so all that, um, but what I would recommend if you do watch it, uh, for people listening and, and for you who have watched it is like, I don't know if you did this. I really got into who they were and I started afterwards to like a lot of reading and enduring about who they were. And, and there's a couple of the, the whole series is based on a couple of memoirs, um, that I'm actually thinking about reading. I've got 
a few books. Yeah, it's, right now, it's but... funny. I've wanted to read the the Band of Brothers one because, like, you, you made me think the PTSD. Buck Compton, the guy who they they profiled having mm-hmm. like severe PTSD, there they apparently didn't want to tell that story because they didn't want to embarrass him, and he insisted that they tell that oh, story. Really? He That's actually cool. wound up becoming the district attorney for Los Angeles. Uh, Buck Compton, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yep. Well, anyway, uh, I just I, it was really good. It was not easy to watch, but it was really good. It was very different than Band of Brothers. Uh, in fact, when I finished, I went back and watched the first episode of Band of Brothers. It was like a palette. Well, they're making a new like, one apparently uh, uh, over some some air campaign. I can't remember what their profile. I mean, I'm all for them keep doing it until they can't get it right anymore. So yeah. whatever, just keep keep doing. It's interesting. Things, yeah, I can watch the World War Two stuff all day long, um, and as much as I know, it might be potentially good for me i don't know i there's a bunch of stuff that's been made um about like the outpost which is written by you know jake tapper who's tapper. a friend and yeah. you know that i just haven't gotten myself to watch yet and i guess because it's maybe a little too close to home because uh, it's my war but anyway yeah. all right well that's been a really fun and rosy subject for us to talk about not where i meant to take <laughs> it but but all the same uh you know i thought it was a great series and i enjoyed binging it um if you're listening uh, and you want to see more about what we're doing when we're not talking to you here, uh, I'm at Jason Kander on all the stuff, and Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on all the stuff. Uh, please leave a five-star review. It helps people find the show. Uh, thank you to the Midas Mighty, and remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. 